Welcome to the Peds and P, Pearls of Evidence-Based Practice, Episode 2, What to Do with the Poo. I'm your host, Becky Carson. Join us today as we talk about an extremely common presentation to both primary care and the emergency department, constipation, and how to best assess a child's presentation, diagnose constipation, and manage the clean-out at home with two essential medications. Full disclosure, I am the wife of a pediatric gastroenterologist, so between dinner conversation, our two dogs, and our one-year-old son, poop is an ever-present topic of discussion in my life. I used to be really intimidated by abdominal pain in children when I was working in the emergency department as a new grad nurse practitioner, perhaps because, like many providers, I feared the high-risk surgical abdomen that might walk through the door and that I might inadvertently let it go unnoticed. It seemed like a medical legal liability that I just couldn't risk. Many of my students struggle with managing constipation in the primary care setting as well. This can happen for a number of reasons. There's no one prescribed way to treat constipation. There are a lot of options for medication and or behavioral treatment. And families have difficulty adhering to our recommendations because of either a lack of understanding or the difficulties of adding a new treatment to an already busy household. Before we go looking for the solution, let's understand the problem. Here's what the evidence tells us about children with constipation. Constipation is one of the most common visits in primary care, and children with constipation are three times more likely to have emergency department visits. Two studies examined parental reporting of quality of life scores for their children, So this is parents telling us how happy their child is. And parents of children with constipation reported lower scores than the parents of children with cancer. Constipation is a condition that has high resource utilization, but overall low acuity. So it's one where we at the PEDSNP can focus our efforts on the triple aim, reducing healthcare waste and expenditures, improving patient outcomes, and improving patient and family satisfaction. So I wanna talk with you about poop, how to recognize the symptoms of constipation compared to other less benign abdominal conditions, the physical exam findings you should or shouldn't worry about, how you reach the diagnosis. And lastly, I wanna spend most of our time discussing what to do for management. Let's get started. First, get the history. In most of this podcast, we're talking about previously healthy children, no major past medical history. A child with underlying disease, a surgical history, poor growth, cognitive delay, or any other variety of chronic medical conditions should be treated very differently. Constipation can typically be diagnosed with just a history and physical exam. You'll ask about a history of infrequent, hard or painful stools. You'll wanna know things like their stool consistency, caliber, how big are they? Do they clog the toilet? Do they have difficulty or pain in stooling? Do they have belly pain that gets relieved by having a bowel movement? You can ask about red flags like bloody or bilious emesis, blood in the stool, bladder incontinence. Get a three-day diet history and assess their growth charts for poor growth. Ask about incapricis type symptoms. Does your child have stool accidents that are liquidy? Do you find streaks of stool in your child's underwear? 
Have you ever noticed a peanut buttery stool in their bottom between trips to the bathroom? Parents often think this is normal, like learning hygiene independence as a school-aged child. But when you confront them about it and tell them that it is, in fact, in caprices, a larger symptom of functional constipation as it needs impaction, they're totally surprised. And for children that are in the potty training stage or preschoolers, you can ask parents if they've ever stood stick straight and strained. Parents often misinterpret this behavior as constipated, thinking that their child is working hard to stool at that moment where actually they're working harder to not stool. This withholding is a normal developmental milestone because they've learned so much fun, cool stuff about the world around them, and they're more excited about playing and less excited about putting down their toys for even a few minutes to go poop. So they hold it and hold it and hold it, and it gets into this vicious cycle. You'll want to ask about a family history of constipation, inflammatory bowel disease, IBS, thyroid disease, other GI diseases. This is certainly not an exhaustive list of questions, nor a script for what you should say exactly, but it'll give you a good head start on the possible etiology of the condition, which can help you best treat it. Our guidelines from the North American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPAGAN, on the Evaluation and Treatment of Functional Constipation, published in 2014, lists out the Rome 3 criteria, which can be really helpful to review in order to ask parents the right questions. Since these guidelines were published, the Rome 4 criteria were published in 2017 and included some minor changes from the Rome 3 criteria to help classify functional constipation on a continuum rather than as a discrete disorder. Functional constipation is just that functional, meaning that there's no underlying serious medical condition causing the symptom. The GI system works correctly on a cellular level. At some point, most, if not all children will experience it. And it's your job as the clinician to distinguish it from organic or pathologic etiologies of constipation. So now that you know the evidence, you can make the decision that if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, well, it just might be constipation. And therefore, it is reasonable to treat it like constipation, even though it may not fit NASPAGAN's definition. You've heard me talk about how I like to use the word reasonable a lot, because there's more than one way to skin a cat. And you'll hear me say that a lot, too. There are many ways to get to the same result. And this art of medicine, the art of nursing, requires a lot of skill and consideration of the holistic perspective of the patient. And medical decision-making will often leave us with more than one right answer. So now let's move on to the physical exam. Generally, children with constipation have a reassuring physical exam. You'll wanna do a complete abdominal exam, and you may note some periumbilical or generalized tenderness, but they should have no focal tenderness, no guarding, and certainly no peritoneal signs. A GU exam may be warranted based on the history, and a digital rectal exam may be warranted too, but this is at the discretion of the provider. While a DRE can give you a lot of excellent information, like rectal tone and tell you the presence of any impaction in the rectal vault, there might be a psychological component for some children with constipation. So if it's going to cause more emotional trauma to the child to do this, it might not be worth it. 
Certainly, it's a great adjunct to your physical exam, but not absolutely necessary to reach the diagnosis, especially if it's going to cause trauma to your patient. At a minimum, it's important to at least inspect the area, looking for sacral dimples, a tuft of hair, view the anal wink and the placement of the anus, as these can also be signs that point us in one direction or another. Make sure you always have a chaperone in the room that's not a parent to protect both yourself and the patient. And then lastly, always remember to pay close attention to the neurologic exam, looking carefully at lower extremity reflexes and gait that might signify a neurological etiology of their difficulty stooling. So should you order any additional tests? The NASPGAN guidelines recommend against the routine use of x-rays for the diagnosis of constipation. X-rays are poor indicators of stool burden, and they have no prognostic value when diagnosing constipation. Plus, just because an X-ray is normal doesn't mean that the child doesn't have a potentially harmful diagnosis. You already knew that they were constipated based on the history and physical, so skip the X-ray that only adds costs to your healthcare expenditures and use your clinical skills. Let's remember that the main purpose of the history and physical exam here is to effectively exclude other diagnoses or disorders in which constipation-associated symptoms are present and to identify any complications. There may be times when you have a red flag in your history or physical exam, or maybe the differential diagnosis includes constipation, but also includes some other disease processes too, in which case additional testing is certainly warranted. But this should not be the routine for patients in whom you're confident of the diagnosis, and we should never use x-rays to show the parents how constipated their child is. Spend the extra five minutes with the family to make sure that they understand the concepts surrounding how their child got constipated in the first place, and skip the x-ray. So now you're ready to treat. First, we need to return to our NASPGAN guidelines. It's important to know that there was no evidence in support of prebiotics or probiotics. I've taken care of plenty of children who had a prescription for a cap full of polyethylene glycol every day. This is Miralax. And guess what happened to them? They were still constipated. Why? They needed disimpaction first. Well, so how do you know that your patient is impacted? Well, they would have either one, palpable firm stool in their rectal vault on their digital rectal exam, two, a history of less than one stool per week, in which case you can pretty much assume that they're impacted, or three, you actually might be able to feel some stool balls through the abdominal wall. Why is it important to disimpact the patient first? It's really important to start with a clean slate. The bowel can expand and dilate and lose some of its ability to squeeze effectively. A clean-out or a disimpaction helps to start back at square one, where you can then move on to a maintenance program and retrain the bowels to squeeze effectively with good diet, water, exercise, potty habits, and sometimes medication. So how should you disimpact them? Well, the NASAGAN guidelines state that polyethylene glycol and enemas are equally as effective at disimpaction. So which one should you choose? An enema is generally a good option when you want instant results. Patients that are good candidates for this are acutely in pain. They have a time crunch, like they need to go to school tomorrow because there's a really fun field trip coming. 
or they have stool in the rectal vault on digital rectal exam, meaning that you're likely to get some instant gratification. So when should you use a polyethylene glycol disimpaction? Definitely use it in a case where the child won't tolerate a rectal medication. These are the same children who won't tolerate a digital rectal exam. And if they can stay at home, because this method has a little bit more fecal incontinence associated with it. So how should you do a polyethylene glycol disimpaction? What dose do you write for? Well, you have a couple of options. You could do a three-day, 1 to 1.5 grams per kilo, divided BID, times three days. Or my husband says that that seems like torture to poop that much. He goes ahead and multiplies that by three and does a one-day clean-out. So he uses about three to four grams per kilo and then titrates up to effect. You should max out at 14 caps. You'll dilute the polyethylene glycol with a sports drink to the ratio of about four to six ounces per cap. And ideally, they'll want to drink it rather quickly, within about 30 minutes to an hour. It's not specifically alluded to in the guidelines, but in my experience, you need soft plus squeeze. So that means polyethylene glycol plus Senna. If you remember nothing else from this podcast, remember the value of Senna. It's a natural stimulant that will help those distended bowels squeeze a little bit more effectively to get out the now softened stool. Because so many constipated children lose the efficacy of their bowels to squeeze, Senna is an essential adjunct to those stool softeners in order to get an effective clean out. We talk about normal, healthy children, but still, some kids may need to be admitted at this stage. I took care of an eight-year-old little boy who had just traveled home to the Midwest from Disney World, and he... (laughs) went the entire week that he was there without pooping. I mean, he lived his best life. They stopped and got fast food along the way. He was in an amusement park going on roller coasters all day long, probably also getting mildly dehydrated because it's really difficult to keep up with hydration when you're in the car having to take potty breaks or when you're running around an amusement park in the Florida sun. So he gets back and he hasn't pooped in a week. He's acutely in pain and this is a perfect situation to do an enema. This little boy stood stick straight in the corner of the room screaming for 20 minutes. He was a perfect candidate for an admission and a polyethylene glycol clean out. After a disimpaction, your patient is ready to start a maintenance regimen. For maintenance, NASPAGAN recommends polyethylene glycol, but they also state that lactulose is safe and effective if polyethylene glycol is not available. You can find the commonly used doses of these medications in their guideline. A word of caution if you prescribe lactulose is that it might cause a bit more gas and or cramping than polyethylene glycol does, so you'll want to warn the parents that this is common, especially the early use of it. This is a warning that you'll want to give parents anyway, especially because disimpaction can come with a bit of cramping that can be really scary for parents and distressing for the child. I warn parents that cramping is normal, that it should always come and go. It can sometimes be relieved by a bowel movement, so that's a good time to go sit on the potty. But make sure that parents understand the physiology of what's happening. Your intestines are squeezing that hard, bulky stool through 
which can be uncomfortable. The other piece I'm very big on in family education is the red flags and return criteria. Remember, strong return criteria are one strategy we can use to reduce unnecessary resource utilization when we're confident of the clinical diagnosis. And I think it really helps with relationship building and trust with the family. You're saying to them, I know that you're worried, but this is okay because your child doesn't need any extra testing. But here, if this list of things happens, come back and see me. Don't just tell them to come back if they're worse or not better. It's not helpful. Give them distinct written criteria. If your child develops severe or focal pain, especially in the right lower quadrant, which is right here. If the pain is snowball, where it gets worse and worse and doesn't just come and go. If there's blood in the stool, or if they're unable to take liquids or have persistent vomiting. If they develop a fever, because plain old functional constipation should never have a fever. Or if they try the clean out and don't have a bowel movement within 24 hours. All those are reasons to seek care immediately. Having these quantifiable criteria can be reassuring for parents, so they know what to look for, but it can also be a safety net for you if you have it in your documentation. It means that you've considered the acute care differential diagnosis and that you didn't know anything concerning in these 15 minutes that you saw the child. We know that health exists on a continuum, so we should always be thinking about what will happen after our patient leaves. What if the child got worse? What if that was an early presentation of appendicitis? Well, then you've told the parents the clinical criteria that would suggest to the next provider that sees them that this is not functional constipation and they need to reassess the situation. Remember my disclaimer that there is more than one way to skin a cat, but all of this is my thought process and practice based on years of experience with lots of children. There's no one perfect way to approach this and every patient encounter will be different. But now you've got the evidence you need to make your own decisions when the child with belly pain and constipation comes into your clinic or emergency department. I'd love to hear your thoughts and experiences with constipation and cleanouts. Comment below or send email. I'd also love to hear suggestions on future topic or interests. I hope you'll join us again next time when we discuss what to do with the infant female who presents to the office at 5 p.m. on a Friday with a fever of 103. Until then, do it right for the kids. I'm your host, Becky Carson. Take care.